Zoe, I know that uh, some of you may have just looked at fear when I took the clock down, but uh, just to mentally prepare you, I'm not going to look at the clock today. I still have one on my phone, and I have a good internal clock, so it's not going to be it's not going to be crazy town. But uh, sometimes you uh, you like to not have to look at the ticking clock. We're going to be in Exodus chapter one um, today. And uh, we're going to be spending uh, our time in Exodus. Can you just go oh, one forward while we're looking for you? No, that's fine. Um, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 1. And we're going to be uh, in Exodus for the, the, for the next little while. Last year, uh, as some of you know, or all of you know, uh, I wrote a, a planning book, a transformation book. And that was okay. That was a good experience. And I preached a lot of sermons on like how we could work through that. And, uh, and the, it would, at the beginning of 2019, I wanted to continue to talk about transformation, except that I kind of hate planning books. Uh, I, I, it was, it was, I think they're important. I think it's incredibly good work that people that do those do. And I think that I did a decent job at it. I think I did okay, and, and maybe even slightly better than okay, depending on who you ask. Um, however, uh, it was not fun. And the reality is, uh, God did not give us, as his people, a planning book. That's just the reality of it. God didn't give us a planner. He gave us stories. So I want to spend 2019 talking about transformation, and the way that I want to talk about transformation is following the book of Exodus. Because the book of Exodus is used throughout Scripture as a metaphor for the lives that we are li- uh, uh, for the lives that we are living as we walk and follow the Lord. The book of Exodus is used as a defining narrative for the people of Israel throughout the, in the Old Testament, and specifically for Jews in the New Testament. It's constantly referred back to in the story of the journey of the people of God from Israel to the Promised Land, from not being a people to being a people is considered parallel consistently to our journey as followers of Jesus together following Jesus. As we move from self to Jesus, as we move from slavery to freedom, as we move from death to life. And I think one of the things, though, is that we've lost, for whatever reason, and it doesn't matter how we lost it, but we've lost some of the understanding that that our journey following Jesus is just that, a journey. And it is a transition that we must undertake if we are to become followers of Jesus, rather than merely a momentary decision. Following Jesus isn't a snap, I used to be here and now I'm here, I teleported from slavery to the promised land. That's not the way following Jesus works. Following Jesus works like starting and turning and walking and following and going through the wilderness and finding yourself in the place where God calls you to be. So what I'm hoping is that as we follow the people of Israel on their path, that that we will hopefully grasp a fuller understanding of our exodus as well. Because there are things in 2019 that we as individuals, as a church, as followers of Jesus, as a culture, as human beings on this planet, we need to leave and we need to exit. There are things in 2019 that we need to escape as we go forward. And the reality is we will follow this story. This path of exit and escape is long. It is difficult. It is confusing. It is painful. There are many times when we will find ourselves asking, is this worth it? Is this worth it at all? 
And we will find ourselves asking, am I on the wrong path? Does any of this matter? Yet what we are promised on the other side of this, what we are promised, our promised land is joy. Joy in depending on the Holy Spirit day to day. This is what we're promised in Romans. And I want to start this, not in the book of Exodus, but with this promise from Romans 13. That, 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 that Paul prays for his people and ultimately all people that would read his words. He said, may the hope of God fill you with all joy and all peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the, by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the promised land to which we are headed in this life as a foretaste of the promised land to which we are headed in the next life. This is available to us now in the midst of our pain, in the midst of our uncertainty, in the midst of our anxiety. This hope, this joy, this peace is promised and available to us. But we got to exodus. We got to exit. We got to depart. We need to emigrate from lands of slavery and bondage and fear into what God has called us. So this is where we're going to start. In Exodus chapter 1. So these are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. These are the descendants of, ja the descendants of Jacob, numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. And Joseph and all of his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. There's a couple of things I want to uh, address. First of all, one is irrelevant, and the other is actually important. But first, uh, it's like these 12 names are the 12 sons of Judah. Uh, they become the 12, sorry, the 12, uh, yeah, the 12 sons of, uh, and, and they, they, they become the tribes of Israel. Okay, so those are their names. The other thing that I noticed as I watched this is like, we go in cycles as people of God, where we just bring back children's names from the Bible. You know, we went through like all of the, the gospel names for a while, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then if you wanted to be really cool around the early 2000s, you started to bring like Reuben, Sidian, uh, Levi, Judah. We started to see a lot more of those in the last 15 years. I have not yet seen an Issachar or a Zebulon, so I'm really looking forward to that. So if anyone who is perhaps, like, should any of you have babies in the future, I would like at least a middle name to be Zebulon. Um, that would really... Secondarily, I want us to notice what happened. So we're talking about multiple generations that have gone by. So we're talking about hundreds of years of history that are being condensed into this verse. And... Uh, and the Israelites were and what happened and what happened to them is that they were in Egypt and when they were there they were fruitful and they multiplied they were fruitful and they multiplied where does the language of being fruitful and multiplying sound familiar to anyone Genesis yeah Genesis chapter 1 what was the command that God gave his people be fruitful and multiply he gave that to everything on the earth Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over everything. Shepherd, not crush. Shepherd this planet in the way that I have called you to do it. And so we can see that they are fruitful and multiplying. They're doing what the Lord has called them to do in Egypt. This is fascinating to me because sometimes people act like, I'm in Egypt, I can't do the will of the Lord. No, you can't. Doesn't matter where you're located or if that is the right location, start doing the will of the Lord now. They did the will of the Lord in Egypt. 
Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous, and if a war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and lead the country. Okay, so let's just stop there for a second and ask the question, really? What? what really? Why would you automatically say that? And this whole story starts with a, 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 a ruler who does not know how an ethnic group came to be in his country, and yet his primary response to this ethnic group is fear. An unnamed, unstated fear that something might happen should a whole bunch of events happen to coalesce. They might take the side of the enemies who are attacking us and then crush us. And we continue. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. They built Pithom and Ramesses and store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. And they made their lives bitter with harsh labor and brick and mortar with all kinds of work in the fields all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. So, and this is really interesting to me because we're seeing the pattern of oppression that happens over generations condensed into a very small story. And yet, this is the path of oppression, that there is a fear, there is an unnamed, unstated fear that, that these people may choose the side of our enemies. That should something happen, then then they might turn against us. They are different than us. They are not us. Therefore, we ought to be afraid of them because they are not us. And then this fear turns to exploitation. This fear turns to like, well, now let's take advantage of them. Because, and, and if your original concern was that, and your shrewdness, your genius of Pharaoh, is that, is that if if war breaks out, they'll join our enemies and fight us and fight against us. Are you making that more or less likely by working this group of people ruthlessly and exploiting their labor? This is the reality of this, that further exploitation turns to greater fear and more harshness. And this is something that isn't just in Egypt. This is something that is echoed in the human experience. I've been... I've been studying a little bit about antebellum slavery, and I've been reading a lot of Brian Stevenson lately, and, and there's a, a, a slavery in the South, and there's something really interesting that happened in the southern United States um, around slavery and abolition. And that is this, that they've documented that the experience of slavery for slaves became intensely worse after the British Empire and the northern states abolished slavery. That in their fear, those places that still wanted to maintain slavery made slavery even more harsh. That the domestic slave trade was, was tearing apart families and much more undignified, not that slavery is ever, digni ever dignified, but, but they used to, there was, a, there was an unwritten rule that you would sell people as whole families. And as horrific as that sounds, that is 
infinitely better than selling people as parts of individual families and not acknowledging that those families existed in the first place. We see this in human history. When that, 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 and, and, and not only do we see it in human history, we see it in our own lives. Then we make a mistake, right? So I've made a mistake. I, I've done something wrong. And, and in light of that mistake, and in, in the context that's been created by that mistake, I now pile another mistake on top of it to try and deal with that mistake. And then I pile another mistake on top of those two mistakes because now this mistake is starting to spread so badly that I gotta start to try and fix it. We talk to this about our children, we, we, Teddy and I talk to our children about this all the time, that, that, that sometimes they'll be caught in a bad situation, they've disobeyed us, they've done something that they ought not to do, and then they lie about it, right? And then they keep lying about it. And then in order to cover up those two lies, they gotta tell another lie. And one of the things that we've said is, you feel, one of the things that we've tried to make clear to our children, and I, as a grown man, I'm trying to understand this myself, that if you have made a mistake, your first job when you've made a mistake is to stop making mistakes. You don't make a mistake better by piling more mistakes on top of it. And yet that is what we do as humans. Our pride and our fear and our ignorance will not let us stop making mistakes. We continue to, to pile things on. When the reality out of our mistakes, the, the, the pathway out of this for Pharaoh was repentance. We ought not to have done this. We ought not to, to continue to do this. This was wrong. We need to... To, 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 to fix this and make reparations. But, but instead, they continued to crush and, and, and pride and fear prevented that. And we see the path that Pharaoh takes. And the king of Egypt then said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Pua, when you are helping the Hebrew woman deliver, deliver, sorry, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is, a, it is a girl, let her live. The opposite to what we see in our world today, because our world is so very, very different. Now, we let boys live and we kill girls. But, again, is this fixing your problem? And again, I think that we need to understand the power dynamics in the story that Pharaoh represented president and pope wrapped up in one that all power in Egypt resided in his person, that, that every power in the world stood before these two women and commanded them to commit murder as an expression of oppression on behalf of their country and their God. Pharaoh was God in Egypt. They are presented with every conceivable power standing over these two young midwives, and they are asked, to follow his command to commit murder in behalf and in defense of his fear. And their response is this. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt told them to do. They let the boys live. And I've been studying this a lot over these holidays. And these have become some of my favorite words in scripture. That the midwives, however, feared God. In Hebrew, it's wa ha yel adot et ha Elohim. 
The midwives, however, feared God. And that was a decision that they made in the face of every power that humanity could throw at them. Every threat and every reward was represented in the person of Pharaoh. He could give them wealth, security, comfort, or he could give them pain, torture, and death for disobedience. But these women, however, feared the Lord and would not participate. And this is an inspiring moment because uh, something in me loves loves nothing better than someone standing up to someone powerful and saying, you know. But these midwives feared God. And most of us will not be confronted with the choice this stark. This is the reality of the world in which we live. We will not be confronted with a choice this stark. But we will be confronted with a choice. And we know this because Jesus told us that we would be confronted with a choice. Jesus is speaking to his followers in Luke chapter 12, and he says, I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. But I will show you who you should fear. Fear him who after your body has been killed has the authority to throw you into hell. Jesus stands before his people and says, there is a state out there that wants to oppress you and will threaten your life. And in light of that, be afraid of the person who, when you're dead, isn't done with you. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered, reminding them of a verse that they know from the Psalms. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Keeping track of the hair on head numbers gets easier for some of us as life goes on. But Jesus specifically stated to his followers who they should fear. And we saw this choice played out as Peter stood and was asked, do you know Jesus? You've got that funny fisherman accent that all of the Jesus followers have, aren't I? We saw that choice played out. And the early church members were confronted with the reality of like, will you choose to say that Caesar is Lord, which was part of the, the, the instruction and part of the, the proclamations whenever, whenever government was, was undertaking an activity or a new tax was being levied or a new pharaoh, uh, sorry, a new uh, uh, Caesar was being put into place. This expression that Caesar was Lord was stamped at the bottom of official proclamations. They were required as part of their allegiance to the Lord to say, no, Jesus is Lord. Using the exact same wording, but flipping it on its head, that Jesus is Lord. The early church members confronted this choice, and we're confronted with this choice. Who will we fear? Because even though we live in one of the safest countries in the world, in one of the safest times in human history, in one of the richest, and certainly the richest society that has ever existed in human history, we live in deep, unstated fear and loneliness and, uh, and pain. And we live in, even though we live in fear and, and, and loneliness and pain, we fear fear itself. We fear loneliness. We fear poverty. We fear pain. We fear that we will not have enough, that we will not be enough. And in the, in the environment of this fear, we make horrific mistakes that damage us and that damage other people. 
And in the midst of making those mistakes, we pile on more mistakes on top of them because we are so afraid to, 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 to acknowledge the mess we've made and our inability to follow through on what we've been called to that we continue to pile on and pile on and pile on. And in the midst of this, this fear still lives inside us. We're doing nothing to alleviate it. The fear still lives in us, and we're offered a choice in Jesus. And this has become profoundly clear to me, that we are offered the choice to live in fear of the unknown, fear of something unstated that might happen some future day, maybe if a whole bunch of events are to coalesce, or to fear a God who loves us and sees us and knows us and cares for us and has given his life for us. There's not a choice of whether or not we will fear. The question is, who will we fear? And Jesus reminds us again, be afraid, yes, of the one who, isn't, who, who when you're dead isn't done with you. But be afraid, but, but that one that you're afraid of who when you're dead isn't done with you also knows how many hairs are on your head also cares about you intensely, deeply, before the foundations of the universe knew who you were, had good works planned for you from the beginning of time. That is the one who you ought to fear. So our exodus in 2019 begins with the choosing. This is the reality. If we're going to exodus, and I want to desperately, if we want to exodus what we have lived in in 2018 and 2017 and 2016 and all of the numerous years before that, if we want to exit that, then that begins by choosing who will we fear. And I believe that we as a church and as followers of Jesus want to choose to exit this pain and anxiety and uncertainty and bondage to piling mistake on mistake that damages us and destroys others. And in light of this, we're presented the power of Jesus and his Holy Spirit and the power of, uh, of everything that is holy, that like is beyond anything that we could ask or imagine. And we are presented this and say, are you going to fear the powers of this world, which take and destroy, or are you going to fear the God who deeply, deeply loves you and is building and protecting and ensuring your safety and comfort and joy now and for eternity? Who will we fear? Well, the women, however, feared the Lord. When the king of Egypt, I love this, when the king of Egypt summoned some of the wisdom, some of the midwives and asked them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. Because even in his infinite power and wealth and authority, Pharaoh himself has no idea how women work. (laughs) (laughs) Women are a mystery even to Pharaoh. And even in the midst of Pharaoh's obvious ignorance, what's more important than Pharaoh's obvious ignorance is God's kindness. Because we see immediately after that God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. God was kind to them in the midst of their fear of him. And he rewarded them with security and joy beyond what Pharaoh could give them. God's kindness 
is more important than our fear of the world. And he rewarded them in their fear of him, in their obedience to him, with joy and hope, now and for eternity. So this is what we're left with. Will we also, however, fear the Lord? When we are confronted with all of those things that are attempting to confine us, fear of where the money is coming from, fear of where our, if our family and supporting group are going to be there, fear of whether or not our job is going to be there, fear of whether or not some unnamed, unseen, unclaimed force is going to take us, fear of whether or not we're going to be lonely or happy or satisfied this year, all of those deep-seated anxieties that, that fill bookstores and, and, and line the pockets of, 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 uh, of pharma, pharmacological companies, Will we choose at this point, and by the way, I'm on meds. If you need to be on meds, go be on meds. That's fine. If you need to go read a book about dealing with your anxiety, that's a wise thing to do. But I'm just saying that there are people that are using these things to profit off them and aren't really interested in you being healthy and free of those. Are we, in the midst of that, going to choose the way of the world which leads us deeper down the path of anxiety and, and oppression and anger and injustice? Or are we going to say, we, however, will fear the Lord? And come what may, we will feel the fear of the Lord. And we will trust him to care for us now and for eternity. Because I remind you again of the promise that is stated clearly. The promise that I am deeply, deeply trying to believe in my heart as much as I believe it in my head. That God is love. And whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. And this is how love is made complete among us. So that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love. There is no fear in love. But perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. I'm desperately trying to be honest as much as I can that I am not yet made perfect in love. But I got a hunch I don't think you are either. But I want to be. And I don't think that Jesus said being made perfect in love was something that only happens after we die. I think that there is being made perfect in love, having this fear driven out of us and replaced by the fear of the Lord is something that can happen now in this life as we face whatever we face, that we can live that for ourselves and for our families and our neighbors, and that is the good news that we will share as we leave from here. So as we come to this table, we are again presented with this stark choice because it was at this table that Jesus said, this is, Jesus before he went to the cross said, this is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. This is my body broken for you. This is what I'm doing for you. If you take this, you are taking in the new life that I am offering. So I would like us, as we come to this table, and this table belongs to the Lord, it does not belong to me, it does not belong to any of us. This table belongs to Jesus and is a place where we receive symbols of his grace. I would ask you to take a moment and ask you, what choices are you making? 
What howevers do you need to leave behind as you come to this table? And I would ask you to pray about that. I would ask that the Holy Spirit would reveal that to you. And that when you come to this table, you are making this decision that, 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 that we as disciples, church, however, fear the Lord. That you as individuals, as Phyllis, as, as Zoe, as, as Wendy, that you as individuals, we, however, will fear the Lord. And walk to this table in confidence knowing that what God has for us here is more valuable than anything that the world can give or take away. Let's take some time in silent prayer.